I invite you to turn with me to two passages. So I'd like you to go ahead and look first up First uh, Kings 17, 17 to, through 24. So you can just go to First Kings 17. And then you can keep a pen or a finger there or, or really have a marker in the second passage, which is Luke chapter 7. And we'll be reading in succession two stories that are related to each other. In fact, when we were preaching through 1 Kings 17 and the, the beginning of the Elijah story, I deliberately skipped this passage of Elijah raising the widow's son because I thought this would be a very appropriate passage for Easter. So what we will do now is we will read the, the last section of 1 Kings 17 and then move and read Luke chapter 7, just a few verses that I will name when we get there. Let us pay careful attention to God's holy word. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took her from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came back into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. Then turning to Luke chapter 7. Verses 11 through 17. This is talking about Jesus and his ministry. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of, her, of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea 
and all the surrounding country. This is God's word. Well, early this year, CBS launched a new Star Trek series simply named Picard. It follows the life of a well-known, beloved Star Trek character, Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details because some of you don't care about sci-fi. And perhaps there are some of you who do care about sci-fi and haven't seen it yet and would be upset with me. But one of the reasons that sci-fi is valuable, especially Star Trek, is because it uses fantastic technology in other worlds and other places and other species, including androids, to examine the facets of human life and what it means to be human. And this particular series centers around an old and aging Picard. His character is 94 years old and asks questions about what does it mean to get old and to die? The series of ten episodes really revolves around two deaths. That's all I'm going to say about the plot. It contains several moving scenes where, where characters grapple with, with aging and lost chances and, and mortality. Near the end, one of them reflects on death and what it is to be human. And the character says this, Mortality, that is death, gives meaning to human life. Peace, love, friendship. These are precious because we know they cannot endure. Do you understand what that's saying? It's, the, the, the claim here is that death is part of what it means to be human. In fact, it makes life precious because it doesn't last. And the implication is life is short so make it count. This Easter I ask you, how do you view death? How does it shape your life? You, you can't escape it this year. Um, praise God that the, the models so far are, are not right. The, are, the death toll is, is not meeting the expectations and we pray it will stay that way. And yet, this morning when I looked, we had surpassed 20,000 deaths in the United States that have been attributed to the coronavirus. You may have seen the grim pictures of the refrigerator truck, trucks that FEMA had brought into New York City because the morgues were full and they had to put some place to put the bodies. You can't escape death this year. So what is your view of death? Is it something you fear? So you avoid it the best you can. You either ignore it or you don't take risks. Or maybe you just make life one big party. As the Bible quotes someone, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Is it something that you respect? Like the character in Star Trek. It's the boundary of your life that gives you meaning and purpose. How you approach death affects the way you live. And today we're going to look at the two stories that we read from Elijah and then Jesus to give us an Easter window into the reality of death. And here's what the scripture says, that death is tragic but temporary. Death is tragic but temporary. And you see the tragedy in the story with Elijah and the widow on full display. Now this poor woman has already experienced the ravages of death. She's lost her husband. And in that society, you lose your husband, you lose your status, you lose your standing, you lose an advocate, most likely you lose your income. 
And, and you're forced to depend on your children to take care of you, to take you in. But in her case, not only has she lost her husband, but it seems clear that her son is not old enough yet to start a family. Maybe he's in his early teens. And so she and her son have been eking out a couple of very hard years to the famine that the Lord sent on the land because of the drought. And when earlier in the story, God finally sends Elijah to this woman. He says, go to this widow. She will care for you. She's ready to die. You read in, read in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 12, when Elijah asks her for something, she says, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little jug of oil. And I am now gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat and that we may die. And Elijah tells her, Trust me, just, just make a little bit for me first. And then for your son, and, and, and God will provide for you. And he does. In verse 16, it says, after she did this little act of performance, this little act of faith, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now think about that symbolism. That is an incredible picture of God's life-sustaining presence and it's a stark contrast to the God of Baal, who was that territory, who couldn't provide anything. So God is providing for this widow and this little family in, in the midst of this huge storm, in the midst of this drought. And then comes the incredible shock. An insight from commentator Del Ralph Davis, he says, if, if you're following this story closely and you, you read about her faith and, and God providing for her and these symbols of life and the bread and, and then the oil, verse 17 comes as a jarring shock. It should rock you. Her son becomes sick and dies. Right? You go from this tiny little family that's found this hope in the midst of the storm to a mother's hopes raised only to find them dashed again. You can hear grief and perhaps bitterness in her words when she says to Elijah, what do you have against me, O man of God? In other words, why did you come here? I was ready to die. I had resigned myself to my fate. And then you dared to give me hope. And my son died anyway. I wish I had gone with him. Now she wrongly thinks here that her sin is what's caused her son's death. That's not the case, though she's more right than she knows because sin has come in, death has come into the world through sin. But this story illustrates the tragedy of death. You know, at least when someone has lived a long life to its full and there's, there's completion and closure, you can, you can celebrate their life. I had the privilege of performing the funeral for Barb Gandy's father, Booth. And I never met the man, but I said and meant it when I, when I gave the eulogy. I, I have never met Booth, but I wish I had. He was a, a giving man. He was known for his, his tomatoes and his applesauce. And you just leave his home with something in your hands. He would go out and care for his neighbors. And, and at his funeral, the neighbors talked and the family talked about how he was a loving, giving person. And there was joy there. There was, there was, there was at least completion. It was sad. And, and from the Bible's point of view, still tragic. But you could say, okay, I can find some meaning in life like that. 
Right? The Bible uses the analogy of a child as an arrow in a bow. It's shot and there's a trajectory. It rises up and it comes to its peak and its strength. And, and then it travels down and finally ends and stops. But what happens when the arrow is shot and it's cut off mid-breath? How is that meaningful? This little boy died before he could reach full manhood, before he could have a family and children and provide for his mother. We see some of the senseless deaths in COVID-19, the result of the curse. One of the, the first military deaths, something that has a connection with me, was, was a National Guardsman, I believe, from the state of New Jersey. He was a physician's assistant. He was a captain, and he and his unit were training to deploy to New York City, and they were training in Pennsylvania. And during the training, he contracted the virus. And this man was in his 40s, and he was a prior lung cancer survivor. He's been through a lot. He was a fighter. But it left his lungs weakened. They hospitalized, they hospitalized him, and within a week, he was gone. There was nothing they could do. He left a wife and children at home. It's tragic. Even more tragic is the death of a young child, a toddler, a toddler or even a stillborn child. No chance whatsoever at life. That's the tragedy of death. Elijah, he hears the widow in her pain and anguish, and he doesn't know what to do. He didn't plan this. The death of her son is, is a surprise to him as much as it is to her. And, and he's moved with pity and probably some sorrow of his own. He's probably gone attached to the boy. And he calls out to God. And so he takes the boy up to his room and, and lays him on his bed. And, and he stretches himself over the body three times. And he prays for his, to the Lord and pleads for his life. Now, there's nothing magical about Elijah kind of stretching himself over the body, I think it's best to look at this as some kind of enacted prayer. Basically saying, God, would you take this boy's cold and lifeless body and warm it again and make it alive like mine? And of course, God hears his prayer and brings the boy back to life. Now, you need to stop there and feel the raw joy of this reversal. Right. You're here with me on Easter Day. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection. That's the theme. You've heard many stories from the from scriptures about God or Jesus or his prophets raising people from the dead. And in your mind, you're saying, of course, that's what's going to happen. I know he's going to be raised. That's what God does. Let's get to the point. But you put yourself in the widow's point of view, the Elijah's point of view, up to this point in Scripture, this is not what God does. To my knowledge, this is the first recorded resurrection in history. Not only is it, a, not, a, not only is it impossible for humans to bring back life, up to this point, God has never done it. It's not even within the realm of what is conceivable. In fact, you read Genesis 5 right after the fall and it talks about these long, full lives of the patriarchs, of Adam's descendants, and it always falls with, and he died. And he died. So-and-so lived 900 years. And he breathed his last. And he died. That's the legacy. But now this boy is alive. And the widow's tears of grief turn to sobs of joy. 
And she witnesses the impossible and realizes beyond a doubt that the Lord God is God. And this new act of revelation shines a glimmer of hope into the dark curse of death. I want you also to notice here the love and the tenderness that you see as God brings about this resurrection. The case for the resurrection can be reduced to just a simple, logical argument with cold, hard facts. Um, It should never be that way. Um, Pastor Ellis today rightly brought up the the case of the reasonableness of the resurrection. I I think that Jesus rising from the dead, both, as Pastor Ellis put it, the the scriptural arguments and, and then the the witnesses and, and how they gave their lives and went to their deaths knowing that what they believed was true. They were willing to die for it. And then how the church exploded. I think it's one of the strongest arguments for Christianity. And, uh, but you can just kind of package that into a very cold logic proposition. This is flesh and blood reality. You can see a personal touch and connection in the process. Elijah is caring for the widow. He, he, he's handling the body. He, he touches and stretches himself out over the body. He even uses some of the widow's words in his prayer. He, he, he copies some of her cares and what she says. And then he personally presents the child back to her. This resurrection is, is just not some pointless display of raw power. It's, it's caring and it's personal, which is what we'll see in our other resurrection story. So you can go and now turn to Luke chapter 7. And I will just, I'm not going to reread it, but recount the story of Jesus in the widow. And here Jesus is in the thick of his teaching and healing ministry. And because of that, he's attracted a great crowd. Throngs of people are are hanging around Jesus, hanging on his words, looking for the next miracle that he'll provide. And so as he goes across the countryside from town to town, people follow him. And as they approach a town called Nain, they see a funeral procession coming out of the town. And, And just like today, the everyday traffic of Jesus' crowd parts to make way for the funeral procession. Except for Jesus. His eyes are locked on the widow as she walks by the casket weeping with grief. He drinks in her sorrow. He's filled with compassion for her. He stands in the middle of the road until they approach him close enough that he can speak to her, do not weep. And then he stops the casket with a touch of his hand. And says, young man, get up. And he does. And he gives him back to his stunned mother. And once again, you see resurrection and love in action. As Paul Miller would teach in his book, See Jesus, Jesus has this pattern of looking and noticing people in their pain, and then, and then having compassion on them, and then is, is moved to act in love towards them. Once again, it shows that God is the true God. That resurrection in Jesus' time was still very rare. It only happened in Elijah, and then also in his protege, Elisha's work, and, and now in Jesus'. 
And yet this time it's greater, isn't it? Right? You notice how Elijah acts as an intermediary. He acts as the prophet who, who cries out to the Lord God, God, hear the cries of this woman, raise up the child. Jesus acts as God and simply says, get up, because he has the authority of life in himself. And the young man does. Well, the crowd doesn't get all of that, but they do know that this is amazing. And so they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. They expect and understand now that in some way Jesus is a great prophet, perhaps even the prophet like Moses, the Messiah that the Lord would send to direct God's people and make things right. And so we see these two beautiful stories. You see beautiful beauty and love and the tragedy of death. But these stories, which are true, if they end right there, are not enough, are they? At the end, death is still a cold, hard reality. Both young men grew old and died after they were raised. And so will you. But they point to the beautiful hope of Easter. When Jesus brought people back to life, it wasn't just a handy trick to gather attention. It was a sign of his authority. And it was a foreshadowing that one day, as Messiah, he would die to defeat death for his people. When the stone was rolled away and Jesus stepped out of the tomb, he stamped the head of death and crushed it. And now, as his people, we know death is no longer a tragedy that cannot be beaten. But it is a doorway to a life as God always meant it to be, where we are brought up into the new heavens and new earth with his people, rejoicing, seeing God as he is, living for him as he always meant us to be, our tears wiped away. We sung earlier about Christ being the first fruits and the grave being the furrows through which we're raised. There's a, a phrase in the poem that I shared with you that Now in Christ, death is the gardener, and I'm the seed. Because of Jesus, death is the doorway, not through which we end our life and that's it, but which we begin living to the fullest as God meant for us to be. Now this claim is completely different from the way our society looks at death when we we actually stop to examine it at all. I believe the great temptation today in our wonderful world, especially before COVID-19, was simply to accept death. It's not so bad. It's part of life. Right? Through, through technology, we've been able to postpone much of the early death, the child mortalities, especially uh, prematurely born infants and, and many of the sicknesses that would have taken young people. We can even uh, restore and extend life in ways that would have been unthought of even 50 years ago. And through our technology and care, we can provide a palliative existence so that when people die often, it is not as gruesome, not as painful. And so perhaps you can be tempted to think that life is all there is. This is it. You just get one shot. And when it's done, ah, it was a good life. And perhaps I'm even 
better because of death, because it reminds me to live well in the meantime. Here's that quote from Star Trek again. Mortality gives meaning to human life. Peace, love, friendship. These are precious because we know they cannot endure. Do you hear the thoughts behind that? It's, it's very well said. In fact, those, those last two episodes were beautiful. There were times that maybe me, as a, with the prior emotional con- connection of a Trekkie, uh, was, was teary. It's beautiful. It's well said. It's completely wrong. Utterly wrong. What makes kindness and friendship and mercy good? How do we know they're good? It's because there's a God who is kind and merciful and good and has made us that way too. If we are just evolutionary mechanisms, we're just that. We're biological reactions. No more, no less. If you're honest about that, that point of view, that worldview, that in the big scheme of things, you are an insignificant member of an insignificant species that lives on a, an insignificant planet that is just one tiny speck of our galaxy, which happens to be part of an endless universe teeming with galaxies, all an accident. Well, if that's the case, then your life is a meaningless life and your death is a meaningless death. People who just think that, yeah, this life is all there is and we'll, we'll try to find some meaning in it may not realize it, but they're standing on the shoulders of thinkers, great secular thinkers that consciously chose 200 years ago to accept death as normal. Why is that? Because the alternative was unthinkable. We would have to admit that there is a God who is king and therefore demands our allegiance. We cannot have ultimate meaning in this life because that would mean there is a God to whom we are accountable. And so they say, I will take the danger and pretend that life matters. But that is not who you are. That is not who any of us are. We all know that we exist for a purpose, that our life is supposed to matter and count. And that is because God has created you and me for something more. That wonderful verse in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that says, God has put eternity in the heart of man. And in fact, you and I know that the end of our lives, we will be judged. We will be held accountable. Why is that? Because we're miserable in this life if we don't have anyone who says to you, hey, that was good. That was worthy. Hey, you're going wrong there. We We crave, even though we want to be our own free selves, we crave other people to speak into our lives and affirm and confirm our existence. We're built that way. And that is a promise. That's a a foreshadowing too, that someday we will stand before our Maker to whom we will be accountable. And that is what makes Jesus' words in John 11 so necessary and beautiful. Jesus said, To the weeping Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And the promise of the gospel is that death, so final, so tragic and cruel, even for a full life, it's temporary. One day, 
If you are in Christ, Jesus will say, I've defeated death. Don't cry. Get up. So what do we do with this? Two things. First of all, simply believe in Jesus and his word. Take him as his word. The constant message today is this is all there is. YOLO. You will only live once. And we as Christians who really and historically believe that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again, he's ascended, he's coming back, we are more and more part of the minority in our culture, in our, in our country. And that makes it harder for you to believe. It's just a herd mentality. The, the more stories that you hear that claim otherwise, the more voices and songs echoing this belief and, and painting the picture of life and good is beautiful is, is just thinking about what is here now and fulfillment here and, and people streaming in that direction. You're going to be standing there as everyone's going the other way wondering, am I, am I normal? Is, is what I believe right? This is one of the reasons that we need to gather as God's people. We come to church and every Sunday is in a way supposed to be Easter Sunday. We, we spend a special emphasis on the resurrection this day, but every Sunday we, we celebrate and we sing and we hear God's word preached and we embrace Jesus' triumph over sin and death. We receive the sacraments of the supper. And it's to remind you that, no, this is true. What you see out there is what is insane. You are in your right minds. Trust Jesus that his words are true. That what he did, what scripture said he did. Make that the foundation for your life. And second of all, love Jesus. In our Sunday school class, we are discussing and learning how the gospel is not just all the good stuff that you get from Jesus because he died for you. Right? It's very easy for Americans to have a consumeristic gospel. Jesus died to get me what I need and to make my life better, just as penicillin helps me make my life better when I am sick with certain infections. Jesus' death on the cross is is not simply a medicine that's a get-out-of-hell-free card. His his resurrection is is not simply a cheap death-for-free card. He doesn't get you what you need so that you know you can shore up your life and then go on your merry way and, and do what you want. I said earlier that you can look at the resurrection as something as cold and logical and mechanical where you know you just look at the facts and Jesus raising from the death is is kind of a gear that turns another gear and it connects to your life and out pops eternal life and off you go. Now this resurrection that he offers you is deeply personal. And loving. Just like the stories we saw in Scripture today. This beautiful reality, the resurrection, is an invitation to follow Him and love Him as the new Master who gave Himself for you. The only way for you can experience His, re- his resurrection is if you are connected to Him by faith. And so, I encourage you today, make it your practice as you call out in faith that you love him more because of what he has done for you. And one day, as you are on your deathbed, you will look into the eyes of your Savior and he will call out to you, 
Don't cry. Get up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we echo the words of your disciples. See, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. Oh, there are times that we hold back. There are, there are times that we fall astray. But when it comes to it, when we have put our faith in you, at that point we are letting go and forsaking the claims of this world that we can create our own meaning, our own pleasures, our own reality. And we are grasping simply to the powerful, astounding, jarring hope that you have crushed death. And this death, which we have become so accustomed to, that we think so little of until it is our turn, is actually a terrible tragedy that you have thwarted and beaten. And so we praise you, we rejoice, we exalt in this hope that you have given to us. We offer you our lives in gratitude. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.